the payroll taxes, they didn't send it in. So, so by the time month number six got, came along, they were ready to return the HST. But the last thing anyone in the government does before sending out money is just to make sure you don't owe them. And they did. So they didn't send the money. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete, proven, step-by-step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest David C. Barnett. David, are you ready to rock? I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go. Even though I might be a little bit embarrassed, I'm still ready. All right. Well, you know, that's the thing we were just talking before. It's the surprising the number of people that say, no, I do not want to talk about my worst investment ever. So hats off to you for being on the show. <laughs> Let me tell the audience a bit about you. So David is a three-time best-selling author, consultant, and business coach who has been working with small business owners for over 20 years. Over the past 10 years, he's been helping people buy and sell businesses. David works directly with clients and produces online education products to teach aspects of small business purchase and sale transactions and local investing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's a bit of an understated bio. I've just talked to David for the last 30 minutes preparing for this call, and he's already given me great business coaching advice. So I recommend that you listen up to what David has to say, and particularly as we get through this, what David has learned, because I believe that what we learn through our worst investment ever makes us better coaches, better consultants, and better advisors. So David, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, well, sure, Andrew, I'd be happy to. I I guess just to begin, I've always been an eager entrepreneur, even as a child, teenager, and, you know, starting little businesses as, as some youngsters do. And I went away to university thinking that if I went to business school, I'd learn how to be a businessman. It took about three years to realize that they were actually trying to turn me into some kind of Fortune 500 bureaucrat. But but I finished the degree, and I got out into the into the real world of small business, and I I was lucky to be able to have one of the greatest educations in small business that I could find. I became a sales rep for the Yellow Pages. Do you remember those guys? So <laughs> for, the, for the young listeners out there, the Yellow Pages were a directory of our addresses and our businesses' addresses and phone numbers. Yeah. So, so you know, back in the 90s, if you typed plumber into Google, you would get a plumber in California. They, they, they hadn't, no matter where you were in the world, they hadn't figured out how to localize the searching. And so if you walked into your home and there was water, you know, coming out of your ceiling from broken pipes or whatever, you would grab that phone book, you would flip to the yellow part under P for plumber, and you would look at the advertisements and you'd find someone right in your own hometown, right? Someone local that could come right over. And so I spent almost seven years meeting with the owners and managers of small local businesses, asking them, you know, next time the phone rings, who do you want to be on the other end of the line? What kind of customers are you looking for? And and I'd work with these guys and I'd learn their business model and I'd learn about their margins and what kind of return they had to make. So, you know, I could show a moving company why it made sense to place a full page ad because they could bear the expense and and any added customers would certainly make it a good investment for them. 
but maybe another kind of business, a wholesale person or something like that, it didn't make sense to put in a big ad, but maybe some ads in multiple books because they sell across many cities or so, something like this. Mm. So I got to learn about all these businesses. And eventually, though, I came to realize that with Google and everything coming along, that the future was probably not that bright. So I left Yellow Pages. I started a business with a partner and I sold that business. And that was my introduction to the world of buying and selling businesses. I later then became a finance consultant. So I was brokering um, all kinds of finance products, again, for small businesses. So I was doing operating leases, capital leases. I was doing lines of credit, factoring facilities, which is the sale of accounts receivable. So basically people, when they needed money in their business, they'd go talk to their banker. And when their banker told them no, they would come and find me and I would try to find some other way to do it with some alternative kind of lender. And this is where I learned how banks and leasing companies and and these bigger institutions control their risk and how they set up their own deals. So I'll give you a quick little story. I did an equipment lease for a guy on a garbage truck with a multi-billion dollar leasing company based in Toronto. And they faxed me, you know, back in those days we had a fax machine. They faxed me a power of attorney to act on behalf of this multi-billion dollar leasing company. Now, it was a very limited power of attorney. All that I was able to do with it was to get the registration for that truck changed into the leasing company's name. But I went down to DMV, like many people have to do, and I stood in the line and I showed the power of attorney and I showed the truck registration and the lady did her work, you know, with the papers. And then I was able to send that back up to the company in Toronto. So they would release the funds knowing that they now held title to that piece of equipment. And if, of course, if they didn't get paid, they wouldn't have to sue the guy. They own the truck. They would just have to send a tow truck or something to go pick it up. Right. And this is how they prevented loss. And, and as I started to watch these deals happen, I started to do them myself and I would just copy the paperwork and just, just set it up, learned how to do registrations for the, as far as the um, private property security registration that we have here. And, and so I started to do these things on my own and uh, it actually led to one of the books I'd written back in uh, 2014 invest local came out. And so I'm doing these deals as my side investing, because I know a lot about small business. I can look at a set of financial statements or go in and look at a business as how it's running. And I can get a good idea of whether I think that the the management are good people, if they're qualified, if they know what they're doing. And I wrote this book about it. And the book is all about plan B's. So number one, make plan A, the most attractive thing possible, which is the repayment of your money. And then if it doesn't work for whatever reason, and we, you know, we're dealing with humans, anything can happen. Illness, marriage breakdowns, all those kinds of things. What is the plan B? And so when it comes to my worst investment though, I really should have paused to read the book again. <laughs> so we ta- are, we, are we ready? So yeah, yeah. now, okay, let me read my part. Hold on. Now okay. it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us about that dreaded story that you should have read your book and thought, wait a minute, I know this. Of course, that's what happened okay. with all of our bad investments. You're like, I should have known this. So I was approached by an entrepreneur who has run several businesses. I knew him on and off over several years and had met him on different occasions and he was building a new business. And 
what we have here in Canada is we have a value added tax called HST. So, uh, you know, a business buys a good, you pay HST when you sell goods or services, you collect the HST and you send the difference into the government. Okay. So when you're building a business, you're laying out all kinds of money and all of the contractors and suppliers are charging you tax, but you haven't made a sale yet. So you're paying out all this money in taxes and it's not coming back in. And so when a new business is established, oftentimes they in fact get a check from the government because when they file that tax return, they've overpaid the taxes, sales taxes versus what they've collected. And I've been through it myself several times. So that first filing, you get a check back from the government. And then subsequent to that, if you're doing well, you're just sending money up to them. So this guy started to run short of cash and building out the business because there were some unexpected things that had happened and he had some extra expenses. And what he offered to do was to sell us his HST return at a discount. So the idea was that we would give him an advance and then, you know, within three months, this money would come back to us because the return would come in and we'd be paid out. So easy, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? So we did that. And that's when I started to learn some new things about how the government processes HST and and how they do this. And it turns out, Andrew, that when the figure is high enough, they don't just blindly issue checks, they do a little more work. So a couple of months went by and then they reached out and they wanted him to send, submit some of his bigger invoices and things. So he had to do that. And then when they found out the nature of his business, there was a lot of cash involved. They required him to do an anti-money laundering training. Okay. So now we're at month five because there was so much cash in the business. He had to go through money laundering training, right. just so that he would become aware of these different rules and things. So, so we've gone now from the business being built and all the money going out to he's now operating. Okay. And so the money was due to him, but they didn't release it because they wanted him to send in some more information. And then they wouldn't release it because he had to do the money laundering training. And then by the time we got to the sixth month, Andrew, what's the biggest problem with startups? Gonna run out of cash. So what happened? So what happened was, is the business's sales didn't uptick as quickly as they thought. And guess what they didn't send in? Oh, they didn't send in their their tax, their VAT or HST forms in their no source deductions. So so income tax deducted off the employees' paychecks. Oh, payroll. They did the payroll taxes, they didn't send it in. So, so by the time month number six got, came along, they were ready to return the HST. But the last thing anyone in the government does before sending out money is just to make sure you don't owe them. And they did. So they didn't send the money. So, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse than it was. It was about 25 grand. And I wasn't entirely comfortable doing that deal. So So I invited two other people to share it with me. Mm. And then I had to then deliver the news ultimately about all of these problems that were dragging on. And not only did I feel dumb for having done it in the first place and not being fully cognizant of all the potential hazards that could have come about by doing this kind of thing. Right. I was embarrassed and I felt bad about the fact that I invited some friends along with me. Sure, sure. After two years, we were all able to write it off and it became an allowable business investment loss. So we were able to offset some other gains with it. But 
you know, it was just really dumb. And for a guy who wrote a book on how to successfully invest in local small businesses. Yeah. It was, it was a hard one for me to share. And you know, this was years ago. I don't think mm. I remember I was ready to share the story until about mm. now. Yeah. Yeah. As far as that guy's business, did it just go bust or did he, was he ever, ever able to get it going or the reason why you lost the investment was because he just couldn't make it happen? It, well, he was never able to catch up with those source deductions and things. He ended up selling the business. He, he tried to find a new investor. A new investor came in, looked at what he was doing and the investor made him a proposal where basically the investor bought the business from him mm. and he became an employee. Right. And so his entity was wound up. Right. And so there, you know, there's nothing, you for claim. nothing for me to go after. All right. So what lessons did you learn from this? Well, I, I, I learned that I should follow my own counsel because in my book, I talk about how people can do local investing deals by learning it, how banks do them, which is by having a plan B, they, they get collateral, they get security. They, they ensure that if something doesn't work out right, that there's a plan B to go after. And that was one of the key critical things that didn't happen in my circumstance. Well, let me hubris is probably on there. Okay. You know, okay. arrogance, lots of other adjectives you can probably dream up. Let me say a few things that I get out of. I mean, the first thing is be very careful doing any business related to cash flows related to government. If government yeah. has any, well, just government has extreme power. They can do literally whatever they want. They can cancel something. They can refuse to pay something. They can say, this is going to have to pay something else that that person owns or whatever. So mm -hmm. first of all, be very careful. Um, that's both in, in, uh, in the West and in Asia. The second thing is that make sure that you actually have rights to what it is a value that you're trying to get or to claim or to receive. If you See, don't have rights over it, then, you know, it's very hard. See, Andrew, that, that now that's key because here in Canada, people who do tax preparation, you know, the, the CPAs who prepare people's personal tax returns, if you're owed money, the CPA can actually buy your return from you. So they can give you an advance and you can sign it over and you can give them title to the refund from the government. Mm -hmm. So, and so with that process is all documented with paperwork and forms, et cetera. And in the case of HST returns, this kind of thing doesn't exist. And so really we were just waiting for that transfer to come back to the fellow for him to hand them, hand the funds back over to me. And the HST returns is just one, one type of tax that a business owns, whereas owes versus if you're doing personal income tax and that tax preparer is taking, is, is lending you money on that or taking rights to that tax amount, they know that that's the complete filing of the taxes. Of course, there could be, have been fraud or other things in the past that they couldn't detect. There's the, some risk, but ultimately that's the complete filing for that individual. So they are seeing all the liabilities of that individual. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. A lot to learn. Don't, well, don't do it. Don't do it, Andrew. Don't yeah, do it exactly. What I want to now do is move into that actionable advice where I want you to set, you know, help us to understand how would we do either that deal? Either, well, let you, your actionable advice may be don't do that deal. If it's that, then maybe you can help us tell us if you're going to do a similar type of deal, what should you do? So what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think that there always has to be a, a clear path to a plan B. So there has to be some, some kind of security or collateral against something. 
even if, you know, even if it's a guarantee from some person or entity or other business that you think would eventually have the ability to pay. Right. I mean, you know, if you look at banks, they do secured loans, you know, car loans and things, but they also do have credit cards and that kind of stuff, which is unsecured. And so, you know, maybe if the entrepreneur had, you know, a spouse or someone like that who had some kind of outside job, I could have asked them for a guarantee or something like this. But, you know, when the deal was presented to me, people that are in that position that are building that business, they, they've been to the bank, they've, they've already leveraged themselves up. And by the time they get to you looking for that end, uh, you know, 11th hour, ninth inning money, um, you know, they've already made all the commitments and, and offered up all the collateral and everything. And so it's, it's very, very difficult, I think, to do a deal like that and have it really make sense. I think the, the mistake that I made is because I had been through the startup process myself before and had seen so many other people go through it. I just made the assumption that the experience with the tax return would have been the same one that I had had in the past Right. in that the money would have come back so quickly from the government that there wasn't really an opportunity for, for things, other things to go wrong in the business. And that's where I was wrong because I, I didn't understand all the different hurdles that would eventually be thrown up there. Example in this case be something like, okay, look, you've got this uh, piece of equipment in your factory that's worth $20,000 on the market right now. If I sold it secondhand, I want you to transfer the title to that to me and agree or, you know, and agree that if you didn't pay me the tax refund for whatever reason, which, you know, at that point, the guy would go, no, 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 no problem. That's going to definitely come. Mm-hmm. Then you say, I have the right to sell that piece of equipment. Would that be a way to prevent it? Even though, you know, you know, that, that cash flow is not really the best cash flow to be, you know, betting on because of the, the problem with the taxes. It would be if he had, if he owned that kind of equipment. So this guy had borrowed at the bank. So he had already signed a general security agreement with the bank. The bank had already put their lien across all the property of the business. If he had signed something with me, giving me a right to, you know, put a security interest on something, it it wouldn't be valid because Mm. the bank would already have been there ahead of me. Got it. And so, you know, then it would come down to, well, what happens? You know, are they going to give it to me? And then later I get in trouble with the bank or they, you know, it's complex. And for those people listening, I mean, I think we had a discussion before the podcast talking about the idea of different alternative ways to finance either for a business to finance things or for an individual to think about how they could finance businesses locally. The question I have for you is what's the best book for them to read of yours? Is it the invest local that the one you mentioned? Yeah. yeah. Invest local is all about how to do local investing deals. So really what would have been a better thing is if he had come to me saying I'm short on cash and I said, well, what more do you need? Because if you need some other kind of durable sort of thing, then maybe I could buy that. Right. And release it to you or something like this. And then I would have actually had title to that equipment or property. And so if, if he didn't end up giving me the money, then I would have been able to go and, and take my property back out of the business. And if he came to you at that question and he said, I just need cash to pay payroll and pay my marketing expenses, you're thinking, no, those are things that just, this is already in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and that, unfortunately, what happens when people are building a, a new business, if they've overlooked something, 
you know, what ends up happening is they end up taking the operating capital and using it for capital purposes for yeah. equipment, machinery, build out, et cetera. And then they're starved of that operating capital that they need to float the boat until things start rolling. Right. And, and this is something that you see in businesses of all size, yep, you know, yep, yep, yep. the big ones. Right. And so it, it was not a wise investment and, yep. and it, it very much qualified as my dumbest investment that I ever did. And I guess I thought because it was going to be in and out so quickly. And I, I thought I knew what to expect because of my background and my experience. I just didn't see the risks that were really there. Yep. And there certainly were risks. Well, David, as the podcast host of my worst investment ever podcast, I now anoint that decision is no longer dumb because you've shared it with thousands of people. <laughs> And you're making them smart. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? The thing that I'm working on the most right now is, is I've got a, my everyday work is with people who want to buy and sell small businesses. And I have a online group coaching program where there's actually people from all around the world, um, people in Asia and Australia, New Zealand, and as well as Canada and the US. And um, I work with them together in a group to help them prospect, find, locate, make offers, make deals, do the due diligence, et cetera, on buying a small and medium sized business. And uh, the group's been going now for about a year and a half and it continues to grow. Mm -hmm. And it really is one of the most exciting things in my practice because you can spend a lot of time looking online for information about buying a business. Every one of these deals is done in, in a private envelope. Yep. And it's very rare that you're ever going to get somebody to tell you the, the exact details of what happened when they bought or sold a business because they're all, it's all confidential. But within this group, we have people that will come back after their second and third meeting with a seller and they'll say what happened, what he said, what she said, and then this is what we're going to do. And they'll talk about the actual offers, the terms, et cetera. One example that I love to use is that people will often go to the golf course and say, I just sold my business for a million dollars. Nobody ever then asks them, oh yeah, what was the down payment? Did you have to hold financing on that deal? Like how long is it going to take you to get all your money? Right. And all of those things are critically important. One of the group members actually, I, I, I teach a lot about how you can get uh, sellers to finance part of the transaction. A lot of the times there was a business for sale with this, the buyer went into the meeting the seller absolutely refused to do any vendor financing. And then after the second meeting, he had a set of terms where the seller was going to finance 60% of the transaction. And so it was very instructive for the people in the group to see, yeah, this really is how things happen. And when the right click is, when, you know, when the right connection is made and, you know, trust is earned, people want to transfer the business to the person who's going to be the best new owner. Got it. And for the listeners out there that want to join that group or apply to join that group or find out more about that group, where, where can they go? Uh, the, the central nervous center of everything is davidcbarnett.com. That's my blog site. And from there, you know, I post all the time. There's new videos. I put a video out every week on my YouTube channel and there's my yep. email list. Um, just come on into that group and, and, um, and you'll find us. Okay. Well, listeners, uh, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, David, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And as I said, you've now been anointed no longer. Is that a dumb decision? So 
Do you have any parting words for our audience? Uh, yeah. You know, if, if you want to avoid all risks, you know, just stay home and don't do anything and don't go anywhere. And um, I don't think that's what life is all about. You know, uh, yeah, I lost some money in that deal, but I look at it as the piece of the 25 grand that's going to help save me from losing the piece of the hundred grand. Boom. Because as you go along, the deals just keep getting bigger and bigger. Yep. And we need these little ones to teach us not to make mistakes when we get into the big ones. And that's the beauty of the show. We actually go through the mistake and we map it out and we think about it and we go through what went wrong. And that helps us to prevent ourselves from making that mistake again, but it also helps the listeners. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.